uh, Bible with you this morning. How about if you open it up to Hebrews chapter 7? If you don't have one, you'll find them in the pew racks in front of you. And um, if you're new to New Hope, you don't have a Bible, uh, there's free Bibles in the back when you leave today. We really would like you to take one with you. It's just our gift to you to give you a, make sure you have a copy of God's Word in your hand. Um, you're going to find out this morning just how much of a Bible nerd your pastor is. Um, there's, there's things that put people in the category of geeky, and I think you're going to put me in that category of geeky this morning when you see the way that I, I bring this text out. But my real desire is that you would meet God, and Hebrews 7 is really all about that, that you enc- encounter God. I, I recognize that when we take on a passage like this, it can be daunting, because if you looked at your notes this morning, you just see Hebrews 7 listed. The reason I didn't put verses there is because we're doing the entire chapter, okay? Now, before your eyes roll in... There's some things you just don't try and compete with. So, in Hebrews chapter 7, the reason we're taking it on in the the entire setting is because the, the story is told in one lump sum. So we're not going to get you out of here at 3 in the afternoon. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? The next half hour is going to go really, really fast. In the course of your day, it's going to seem like a blip. But the context that is here, the content, has a possibility to radically revolutionize and change your view of who Jesus is and how you approach Him and, and why you approach Him the way that you do. So my encouragement to you, first of all, is that you not miss Jesus as we go through this text at a fairly rapid pace. Not so fast that you miss the details. I had one individual come to me after the 9 o'clock service that said, I felt like telling you to turn off the fire hose at one moment because it's going to feel like a blast. But there's so much here. In order to do it in the way that it's intended, I have to present it this way. I don't want you to miss Jesus. Here's what I want you to understand about the background. At this point, when these recipients had received this letter, these Hebrews, the Jews were very accustomed to the concept of a priesthood. You may not be, but it was part of their world. It's as familiar as having people in the Senate and people in the House of Representatives is to a United States citizen. They're just part of our culture. We know that they have a function and a form. They carry out their details. Well, for them, the priesthood was a group of individuals who were chosen by God. And in spite of their failures, they served for millennia, hundreds upon hundreds of years, carrying out the function that was very, very familiar to the people of this time. The argument that's going to be made in Hebrews 7 is this. Because Jesus has come, the priesthood has ended. It's no longer in existence. So here's something you need to know before we step into the text. In Bible study, in biblical study, there's a thing known as typology. When you study a type of something, T-Y-P-E. So in the Old Testament, we see types of Jesus. There are things that appear in the Old Testament that are a forerunner or a picture of Jesus in the New Testament. It is an object or a person which has a counterpart in the New Testament. Here's an example of that. In the Old Testament, a historical example would be that God told Moses at one point to take a bronze serpent and put it on a standard or on a rod and stand it up for all the people of Israel who were sick to look upon. 
Well, that is a type of Jesus in that Jesus was lifted up on the cross for everyone to look upon. That's typology. Here's another example. The sacrificial lamb that was brought into the temple to be sacrificed on behalf of the people. That was a forerunner of Jesus. Jesus is called the sacrificial lamb of the world. So that's typology. You're going to see in Hebrews chapter 7 an individual who is a type of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a, if you love mystery, you're going to really love this passage because uh, there's, there's some mysterious people in here. The most important people in the Old Testament are familiar to us. They're, they're right on the front of our mind. If I said to you, name the individuals that pop in your mind right now who are most familiar from the Old Testament, who would you shout out? Moses, David, Abraham, Daniel. I didn't hear anybody say Melchizedek. <laughs> Why? Because he's just really not right there at the forefront. As a matter of fact, he only appears in three verses. And in Genesis 14, of all places. So this guy is a real mystery. He appears out of nowhere. Well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1 and, and learn about this guy whom Scripture says is really important. You'll see this on the screen as well. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." So we've got this guy who appears once in Genesis 14 in the historical record. And then again in Psalms, David writes about him a thousand years later in the poetic record, just in another verse. You would hardly consider that dominant, would you? He suddenly appears and then he quickly disappears. But the Holy Spirit has reached back and touched the writer of Hebrews and caused him to use these passages to explain to us who Jesus is and why He's better, why He's superior. Now, if you've been with the study of Hebrews very long, you remember this verse from Hebrews chapter 6. I'll put on the screen, verse 19, speaking of Jesus, it says, Jesus became a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to look at some really minuscule intricacies, but they're so important for you to understand this passage. First minuscule intri int intricacy is this. In verse 2, we're told Melchizedek is a king. He's a king of a city known as Salem. Now here's something about Melchizedek that's very important. The first part of his name, Melchi, is his name. Zedek is his dynasty. It's a dynastic name. Matter of fact, he's a Jebusite. And the Jebusites were rulers in the land of Israel, the promised land at this period of time. So he's a Jebusite. His last name, his last title is Zedek. So he's Melchizedek. When Joshua went into the promised land, he ran into a king with a very similar name. Why? Because it's a dynasty. It's part of that. So we're now told he's not only a king. In verse 1, we're told he's also a priest, a priest of the Most High God. Therefore, this guy is a priest and a king. Now that name and that title tell us two important things about his reign. Here's the two things. He ruled in righteousness and he ruled in peace. Now that's very similar to Jesus, a type, Melchizedek, of Christ. Let's look at a verse that's referring to Jesus and His peace and His righteousness. 
Isaiah chapter 9, you'll see this one on the screen, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of what? Peace. Now you thought that was just a Christmas verse, didn't you? As a matter of fact, if you go on to read it, you'll see that it refers to peace and righteousness throughout that passage. This is Jesus a forerunner, this passage is saying, here's what Messiah is going to look like. He's going to be a king of peace and righteousness. Now, here's another detail. In the Old Testament, the throne and the altar were always separate. The king had his business, the priest had his business, and the two didn't mingle. They didn't get into each other's business. Matter of fact, when you see King Saul in the Old Testament trying to get into the business of the priesthood, God judges him, and God chastises him and punishes him because the priest didn't mingle with the king, and the king didn't mingle with the priest. But here we have a man who's got both offices, priest and king. Very, very interesting, these intricacies. All these things are pointing to Jesus, who's both priest and king. That's why I wanted you to get this background. It's all pointing to who Jesus is. Now let's take the first big chunk, verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Now, this is just really focusing on the greatness. See how great this man is. In the Greek language, it's saying observe, discern, something specific about this individual because there's some historical facts which have theological implications. So he's going to bring out a few of the historical facts. Verse 4, he says, he received a tenth of the spoils. That's a historical fact. Abraham gave tithes as a result of a mini-war back to Melchizedek. Uh, this is significant. Abraham went off to a battle. He marshaled an army because some of his family had been stolen. They had been taken as kidnapped victims for ransom. And the, the individuals, the kings who carried them away, literally held them until Abraham marshaled an army and came into battle against them. And he defeated them soundly. As a result of the defeat of the kings, or the slaughter of the king, Scripture calls it, he hauled back his family and he took the spoils from the defeat. Well, when he ran into Melchizedek, because he recognized who Melchizedek was, he presented tithes to him. Now keep that in your mind as you move forward into verse 6. It says this, but this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, meaning the Jews, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Verse 9, one might even say then that Levi himself who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. So he's speaking to a group of people who are really familiar with the Hebrew history. He knows that these people understand that, but here, here's it is in a nutshell. Abraham is acknowledging the authority of Melchizedek, that Melchizedek is the superior. So he's saying the inferior is blessed by the superior, the one who's over him. So in giving Melchizedek tithes and receiving blessings back, Abraham's affirming something. He's saying, this one's greater than me. This one is beyond me. So we see in verse 6 that he received 
tithes from Abraham. That's another one of those facts. Just bringing out a detail. Now here's what tithes are. If you're not familiar with church, this will especially be helpful to you. Um, Old Testament history required that the Jews would give a tenth of their wealth back to God. Ten percent. That's literally what the word tithe means. So under ancient Jewish law, this was a command. You see it in Leviticus 27. Give God one-tenth of the crops, herds, and flocks. So the the tithes are to be brought into the temple as an offering back to God. And if they couldn't bring their flocks and their herds and the crops into the temple because it was too far, they could literally turn it into cash. They could sell off and carry the cash with them and bring the cash into the temple to, to give it to God. But what you might not know is tithing did not originate with the Jews. Tithing predates Jewish history. Tithing is actually thousands of years older than Moses. Matter of fact, archaeologists have found that many nations practice the art of, or the action of tithing and bringing money into the storehouse. And so we see Abraham doing something that predates the law. Uh, let's go back to Genesis 14 to just those three verses that were really kind of obscure about Melchizedek and Abraham's encounter. You'll see this on the screen. Genesis 14, 19. It says, he blessed him. This is, this is Melchizedek blessing Abraham. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, he gave him, meaning Abraham, gave him to Melchizedek a tenth of all. It's remarkable. There's no law. There's no commandment. Abraham is under no obligation to give Melchizedek anything. Yet he freely gives back the best that he has. So what you're seeing here is typology. Just like Melchizedek is a type of Jesus, Abraham is a type of of you and I today. He recognizes there's this superior over him. And God has blessed him, so he's taking what he's been blessed with and he's giving back. So in the church today, we're under grace. We're free of the demands of the law. And so the New Testament doesn't give any definite amount of money that you and I are supposed to bring into the church. I keep looking at the offering boxes because I'm thinking that's where we do our giving. We don't have to do any specific amount because we're not under the law. We're not told what the amount is to be, but we're told that we're supposed to give. It doesn't mean giving is optional. God still expects us to give, but the basis of our giving is our devotion to God, our dedication. I'll help you understand that in a minute as we move forward. Now, here's another detail. The Levitical priest worshipped Yehovah. You heard that term before, Jehovah? Is that familiar to you? Okay. The term Jehovah is a nationalistic title. It's a phrase that's familiar to the people of Israel. Not so familiar to people of other nations. So this title, Yahovah, comes out in the Old Testament when the Jews were worshiping God. But Melchizedek comes on the scene, and in verse 1, just allow your eyes to drift back up there, and we see that Melchizedek is priest of the Most High God. And then up here in this verse on the screen, you see in Genesis 14, Blessed be Abram, God of Most High. In the Hebrew language, that's El Elyon. I want you to see this title on the screen because you might want to write this down in the back of your Bible. El Elyon is the name that was most familiar to the people of Bible times for God, the God who is creator of heaven and earth. 
See, Jehovah, the Jews knew him by Jehovah, Yahweh. That was their nationalistic title. That's the way they identified God. Melchizedek comes on the scene and says, Blessed be Abram, father of the Jews, who serves El Elyon, the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. Why is that significant? Because your Jesus is God of the whole earth, not just one nation. He's not Messiah of the Jews. He's Messiah of the world. So Melchizedek, the forerunner of Jesus, says, Blessed be El Elyon, the God over all of creation, the God over all the world. And very interestingly, immediately after this encounter, Melchizedek leaves the scene. Abraham runs into the king of Sodom. And when I'm saying Sodom, I'm talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, those two twin cities. Abraham runs into Sodom, the king of Sodom, and he begins using this exact same title himself. He no longer refers to God as just Yehovah. He says, Yehovah El Elyon, Lord God of the Most High. You see it in Genesis 14, 22. Now before I get bogged down into this minutia, let's move forward because we've got a few more verses. Verse 11 says this, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe. He's start, starting to talk about Jesus here now. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. What you're seeing here is a radical change. The God who instituted the Levitical system in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai is bringing about a radical change. And this is what this writer of Hebrews is trying to tell these people. It's no longer the order of Aaron. It's no longer that Aaron is the one by whom you come to God. It's forever the order of Melchizedek. So he goes one step further. And he says, not only is Melchizedek better than Aaron, Melchizedek replaces Aaron. This order of Melchizedek. Why such a change? This, this may not rock your world until you understand this, but hear me on this. Why such a change? Because the law, meaning the system of works, which people still participate in today in 2014, that system is imperfect. It could never work. The priesthood is imperfect. The Old Testament priests could not complete the work of God. So in other words, when you come in here this morning and you want to meet God, you want to engage with the God El Elyon, and you hope that the environment is right for that to happen, under the priesthood, that could have never been complete. It couldn't happen. Sin separated them from that God. So the priest of the Old Testament could only take them so far. That's why he's making the case. We have a great high priest who could take us all the way into the presence of God. El Elyon. So if there's a change in the law, that must mean something monumental has happened, correct? Now let's put it in 2014 terms. We have in the United States a president of the United States. The president 
cannot proclaim himself to be king, correct? Yeah, some of you say amen heartily. Because there's presidents who have thought that way, that they should be king, okay? So we've got it in law that a president cannot be king of the land. They are president. They are term limited. So what would have to happen for a president to become king? The law would have to change, right? I mean, in its most basic form, there would have to be a change to our Constitution. The law would have to change. So in the law of Moses, there was absolutely no provision whatsoever for a priest to come from the tribe of Judah. It just wasn't there. That's why he's saying in verse 14, it couldn't happen. It wasn't in the law. But since our high priest is from the tribe of Judah, there must have been a change that was monumental, a change in the law. Well, there has been. The entire system of the law was eliminated because of one action. Let me take you to the book of Colossians. Look with me on the screen. Colossians 2.14. He, meaning Jesus, canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. What are decrees? Laws. Consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and He has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Praise God, new hope. That is the monumental change. Jesus forever obliterated the law. The great high priest now can take us into the presence of God where we can encounter God because Galatians 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Meaning you're no longer under the law. You're now living in an age of grace. So you and I obey not out of outward compulsion. We don't give to God because someone's making us do it under a legal system. We don't show up and worship God on a weekend because someone's requiring it of us. We do it because we want to meet God. We want to encounter the living God of wonders. Now, when people hear things like this, they think naturally, does this mean that the law of God is done away with? What, is it, what does that mean to the Ten Commandments? Are those eliminated? What do we do with that? Well, understand, in the, in the Bible, law has several different meanings. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, we want to look at that as God's moral law, and I'm going to give you an expl explanation of that. God's moral law never changes because God's moral law is part of His nature and His character. So when God gives us these Ten Commandments, we find those reflected throughout the Bible. Let me use an example for you. In Genesis, man falls. There's two sons born, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel begin a fight, and one of the brothers is murdered. God arrives on the scene and says to the murderer, your brother's blood screams to me from the ground, meaning God is very unhappy with the situation. God on Mount Sinai says, you shall not murder. Jesus in the New Testament shows up and says, if you're even angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. See, it's a consistent thread. It's part of the nature and the character of God. You can take each of the Ten Commandments and say, there's something specific about those that apply to the nature of God. Even Sabbath rest, not necessarily a day because then we'd be under legalism but in the sense that we need to be recharged. God knows that we need some time just to be refreshed. So the Ten Commandments don't go out of existence. As a matter of fact, I think in the New Testament what you find is that you and I are held to an even higher standard. 
higher standard than those of the law were held to. Let me show you why up on the screen. Acts 17.30, it says that God overlooked times of ignorance, is now declaring to men that he's affixed a day of righteousness. Meaning there's a period of time when people just didn't know what they didn't know. But you and I, we have the completed word of God. And so therefore, God's not overlooking ignorance anymore. He's affixed a day in which he's going to judge the whole world. Uh, let's move forward. Here's a time to take a big breath. We're beyond the halfway point, but come with me into a big section, 15 through 18 or 19. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Here's Jesus, verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, meaning Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Just two words I want to pull out of that big section. If you have your Bible this morning, you want to write or circle something, I would be circling the word another. And specifically, here's the reason why. Another means another of a different kind. It's the word heteros. And in the Greek language, there's two words for another. One is alos, which means another of the same kind. Heteros is another of a different kind. So let's put it in terminology we can understand. Let's say I'm driving a, a 2005 Chevy Malibu, and it's a, it's a real junker. It's got 300,000 miles on it, and I need to get rid of it. If I take that Chevy Malibu and trade it in and get myself another brand new Chevy Malibu 2014, I'm getting an alos, another of the same kind. But if I take that old used Chevy Malibu and I trade it in for a 2014 Jeep Wrangler, I'm not only a happy boy, I'm getting another of a different kind. That's heteros. That's what's used of Jesus. Another of a different kind. Why is that important? See, in Jesus, we do not have another just like the priest who went to the temple who were imperfect, who were full of sin. We have another of a different kind, a heteros, one who is completely different. Still a priest, just like in the analogy of an automobile, still an automobile, Jesus still a priest, but of a completely different kind because the Levitical priest served into an imperfect system under an imperfect law. They were weak and useless according to verse 18. And they could not continue forever. But verse 16 says Jesus had an indestructible life and has an indestructible life. So therefore, he's the perfect high priest. He will never be replaced. So if we translate that over to what we learned last week, Jesus can do what Aaron could not do. Jesus takes us into the presence of God and he drops anchor, church. Familiar with that image? We talked about that last week, how he puts the anchor for us in a good place, a strong, secure place. See, Jesus could do what Aaron could never possibly do. Uh, two more details before we wrap this up. Look with me again at verse 18 very closely because it says the former commandments have been set aside because they're weak and they're useless. This is really the climax of the text. I know there's a couple more verses, but this is the high point. Here's the emphasis. The law is replaced by Jesus. So he uses this phrase, setting aside. It's in your notes this morning. 
this setting aside looks like this. It's, it says to do away with something that's been established. Here's how it was used. In the ancient days, just like today, if a person who had acquired some degree of wealth or substance in their life and they wanted to pass it on to a family member, we would write a will, correct? And a will usually gives the terms of disbursement. If along the way, though, a parent perhaps became irritated with a family member and they wanted to rewrite the will, they would use this phrase that you see on the screen that's in your notes also. This setting aside, doing away with something that had been established. Well, this establishment was the law, the sacrificial system. What we're being told here is the entire system has been done away with. How did God assure that? 70 AD, the Romans show up and they obliterate Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. 2,000 years later, it's still not in existence. Jesus died and within one generation, the entire sacrificial system is gone from planet earth. God assured it when the Romans attacked Jerusalem. And so we're told as a result of verse 19, as a result of all this, you and I draw near to God. The Old Testament system could never do that. So in Jesus, what everyone has been looking for, the opportunity to meet God, to draw near to Him, happened as a result of the removal of of the old system and Jesus ushering in the new covenant. So we come back to this anchor verse, Ephesians 3.17. I read it for you after three worship songs this morning. Look at it now through this lens. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Could Paul have possibly written that to the Old Testament Hebrews under the legal system? Not possible. But in Jesus, this is possible. You can know what it is to enjoy the fullness of God. This is the ultimate goal of the gospel, that you and I would be brought right into the presence of God. And his argument is that Aaron's priest could never do that because there was always this barrier in between. In Jesus, what we know is that sin is actually dealt with. So, I have just one section of verses I want to show you before we go to the last two verses, last three verses. And it's an Old Testament writing. It's something that I read and it amazes me that the Jews didn't see it and understand it. Let me take you back to the book of Jeremiah with everything in mind that you just saw. Look with me at Jeremiah 31. This is God speaking. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. That's just an excerpt. Go to the next excerpt. This covenant the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart. In other words, not on tablets of stone anymore. I will write it on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Next excerpt, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four: For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's under the new covenant. Now, if I have a guy who's lived my entire life 
trying to earn God's favor. Trying to bring just enough sacrifices into the temple that maybe God will overlook my sin. Or at least it will have a covering. If I've worked my entire life trying to please God, I am loving that verse. That God has said, there's a time coming when I will forgive iniquity and I will remember sin no more. I want that. I, I want that elimination of my criminal record. That's what God is saying. I'm going to wipe it out and I'm going to remember it no more. How did the Jews miss, miss that in Jesus? I don't know. I understand there's some blindness going on, but man, it's right there. Well, let's wrap this up. Go with me to verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, verse 21, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one, meaning God, who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And God made that oath as you learned last week. And can God lie? No. God's oath cannot be broken. So therefore, what we have is eternal church. What we have is unchangeable. So verse 22 tells us Jesus is your guarantor. If you happen to own a home and you have a mortgage on that home, you had to sign your name on that mortgage and your house became the surety. Meaning if you didn't make your payments, they're going to take your house back. What we're told according to this passage is Jesus is your surety. He's your collateral. He's saying this is going to happen. He personally guarantees it. So here's where we're going to end with verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Greatest verse in the Bible, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Look at the contrast. Many high priests in the old system, he says in verse 23, the contrast is Jesus. We have one high priest in the church. What does that mean for us? Confidence. It means he's never going away. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In a changing world, in a shaking world, that's really, really critical. So here's the conclusionary statement he's making in verse 25. Look with me just at this verse on the screen. 725 says this, He is able also to save to the uttermost. In the Greek language, uttermost means completely and forever. It's a combination of the two words. He saves you completely, meaning there's nothing else to be done. And he saves you forever. That's uttermost. How does he do that? when we draw near to God through Him. Now, this is a point at which many Bible teachers get in trouble. I'm, I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Now, we're told that Jesus is our intercessor. Verse 25 says, He always lives to make intercession. Do not think of God as being angry with you. If Jesus is your great high priest... It's because you've surrendered your life to Jesus. So therefore, God cannot be angry with you. So Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the Father saying, wait, 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 don't, don't get too mad at Him. That's not what intercession is. 
The Son is not constantly appealing to the Father. Hebrews 13 tells us that God the Father and God the Son are on the same page regarding your salvation. So what does this actually mean that He intercedes for us? Intercession involves representation. He is your great high priest. What is the function of a priest? To bring a sacrifice before God the Father. What is your sacrifice? 1 Peter chapter 2. The way you live your life. You live out your life as a spiritual sacrifice. So before the Father, Christ makes intercession saying, look at that one that belongs to us. Look what that one is doing. And God the Father and God the Son determine whether or not it's being done of a genuine heart. So the Father and the Son are on the same page and the Son being the high priest intercedes to bring you and your prayer life before the Father. Why? Because according to this quote, and this is very accurate, it's what He is that determines what He does. What is He? Your great high priest. So what does He do as a result of that? He intercedes for you. You pray through Jesus to God the Father. I want to come back to this point where I said Bible teachers get in trouble. Because verse 25 says, we draw near to God, underline, through Him, right? Many Bible teachers get criticized for claiming Jesus as the only way to God. Here's the reason that we claim it. Because God said it. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's not, thus saith Mark, okay? Thus saith the Lord. We draw near to God through Him. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the way it happens. So that may not be popular. And in the world that we live in, it certainly is not popular. But just because it's not popular doesn't mean it's any less true. See, Jesus is not only able, He's the only one who is able to save. Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, if you've been counting along on these verses, you know that there's three verses left. I'm not preaching on them or teaching on them. I'm just going to read them to you to close and let you draw from these last couple verses what you see about Jesus. Look with me at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, our priest has no weakness, and because he has no weakness, he is perfectly able to love you. And He is perfectly able to save you because He is able. How cool is that? (laughs) Okay, you did it. 28 verses, way to go, everybody. Let me pray for you and then I'll send you out. Father, thank You for causing Your Word to be alive in the presence of Your Holy Spirit who gives us application. I pray for each individual in this auditorium First of all, for your blessing on them, for their dedication to knowing you and understanding you. 
But God, that you would take this application and that you would apply it to our life in such a way that we will remember to talk about you as our great high priest throughout the week ahead of us. When we engage with family members and friends in conversations, that we will remember that you are our intercessor, that you go before us, and Lord Jesus, that you took us right into the throne room of God as our anchor. Thank you for these truths. You've done things for us that the old legal system could have never done. And we praise you that we do not live under that law, but that we live under your grace and your mercy. Remind us of those things as we go out in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.